It is Friday, May 15th, 2020, and it is episode 33 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. A lot to get to today. A lot of fun questions. I peeked at them before the show. So I uh, really appreciate everyone who is showing up. Give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, all that good stuff. And without further ado, let us get on with the program, shall we? All right. As I mentioned, please give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. Always appreciate that when you do. Folks have asked, what's a great way to give back, Luke, if we can't financially support, which of course you're under no obligation to. Um, watch ads is one, and also send us to somebody. Like somebody you know, let them know about this. Right? Always appreciate that when you do, and thanks to everyone who is a, a big part of this chat. Okay. Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes. If you're looking for uh, anything that I'm involved with, whether it's my radio show, you can try it, SiriusXM, for free for the rest of the month. Link below. There's a free podcast, which is a best of episode. Link in the description box below. My Morning Combat Digital Showtime program. Link in the description box below. Tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Showtime, they're going to re-air Mayweather McGregor. They're also going to show Mayweather Madonna, but I'm imagining for most of you, the hook is uh, Mayweather McGregor. Starting at 9.45 on YouTube, Brian Campbell and I are going to start drinking and then re-watching the fights. So you can join us and have a good time at around 9.45 p.m. this evening. Okay? All right. And then last but not least, um, thanks to everybody who watched uh, this program that we're put together for Showtime Extreme. Brian Campbell and I do called uh, Morning Combat Showtime, excuse me, Morning Combat Strikeforce Classics. Um, we're going to record another episode tonight, actually right after the show is over. And then um, yesterday, the, uh, they, they showed Shamrock Lee, Shamrock Baroni, and then Shamrock Diaz um, on Showtime Extreme. And then we talked to Coker and Mauro Ronaldo about it. It was a lot of fun. So thanks to everyone who has uh, supported all my projects and, and all that good stuff. All right. Without uh, any more wasting time with housekeeping stuff, let us get right to the questions if we can. And uh, I'm highly caffeinated. So that should be fun. All right. Bum, ba -da -bum, bum. Uh, the terms of... Let's see. All right. First question. All right. Here we go. Why wasn't Tony able to weaponize his pace against Justin? He never really got going and his output wasn't nearly what it usually is. Also, I think I saw him throw one elbow in the entire fight. What do you make of this? Um, so a couple of things that are my hunch. I, I need to go back and rewatch it in great detail to be truly sure. Also, you should watch people who broke the fight down. I don't know if Faraz did. I, I didn't see the actual video, but I saw that the weasel did. So I'm sure he did a great job. He usually always does. Um, but here's my sense of things on that. So I went back and I rewatched the fight with Tony and Dos Anjos, where, to your point, even in Mexico City at like 7,000 feet plus elevation, he was able to do exactly that. He was able to weaponize his pace. So what was the difference? Well, one, I think that the punching power of Justin was just a deterrent to a degree. It certainly made him rethink, or I should say, it seemed to make him rethink certain elements of the fight, either shot selection, when he wanted to enter, what to expect, those sorts of things, which accumulatively over time, each one of those might be a small decision, but it kind of adds up. That's one. 
I think two, Justin's when Justin was a little bit still, he was hard for Tony to um, to do anything too. So you he's moving in and out and then side to side, and then when you're when when he's connecting with you, he's crashing you and then changing angles and then a lot of times hitting you again. So Tony is getting turned, crunched, and then having to reset again. Whereas usually when he is barreling down on an opponent like he was in the Dos Anjos fight, he's like in this forward flow state. He was constantly having to reset here because he would like, you know, he'd get hit with something and then Justin's either exiting or exiting at a different angle and then cracking him again. And it was just, I think it was very disorienting. So the power must have been hard to deal with. The motion was hard to deal with. The motion with the power, with the angle changing, and then disruption, uh, disruption of your timing, I think was a, was another key part of it. The leg kicks probably didn't help. I doubt that was really the reason. Um, but the other part here is Justin's defense. A lot of people, uh, you, you're seeing it more. Dude, striking in MMA has gotten so much better. With, for simple reasons, guys will throw a one-two and then they'll roll underneath. And then when you roll underneath, not only are you out of the way, like if, if you, I'm in front of you, right? And I go bop, bop, and then I roll. I'm literally no longer in front of you in the same way. So I've launched my attack. I've gotten under and away from your counterattack. And now I'm at least in a defensively better position or... I can also be, while being defensively sound, I can be re-angled for another attack on you. And you're seeing that. So think about it before. Justin would lean over, throw that overhand right while he's kicking um, the leg. He would roll under Tony's punches. Now he's facing this way as opposed to being right in front of Tony. And then he cracks him with the left. He has changed angles, gotten out of the way, set up the attack, and then still landed a follow-up attack while getting and moving and then resetting the angle and then disrupting uh, Tony's timing. Dos Anjos just did a lot of this. Just kind of stayed in front and then blocked. There wasn't a lot of slipping and countering. There wasn't a lot of rolling. And you might be asking why. Well, there's not a lot of good boxing trainers to teach guys how to do that. I think a lot of people learned their striking defense from like adapted... Muay Thai for MMA from like the early aughts, you know, so the mid 2000s where a lot of guys just did this. They didn't they didn't use any other kind of stuff. But remember, Trevor Whitman comes from boxing and also fully understands the MMA game. So he's going to be able to incorporate things into Justin's game that, you know, a lot of other fighters are just not going to have access to. And so to me, those were a lot of the big reasons. He just you're wondering why he couldn't just lean on Justin uh, and push into him, it's because Justin was resetting angles and then cracking him or in, entering, cracking him leaving. He wasn't standing in front of him. He wasn't, you know, standing at range. And then this sort of comp, and then his defense was setting up his offense and then leading into all those other problems. It was just way too much. I don't think Tony had ever dealt with somebody like that, you know? That's why when people were like, like, who's a, like, now that you think about it, who would win between Tony and McGregor? I still might say Tony, but. McGregor would light him up early, dude. McGregor would light him up early. Now, as you can see, his chin is legendary. So the point being is McGregor might fade. And if Tony wanted to get back to wrestling, which I covered this week, he doesn't usually do that. But maybe against an opponent where he perceived that to be a weakness, he could. But early on, I think I think McGregor would probably find a 
fairly strong degree of success. It's just that over the course of the fight, would that be true? Um, and probably, maybe not. I mean, I, you know, we, we can debate that. But I think those are the reasons. Uh, you know who also does a really great job of uh, hitting, rolling, and then exiting, or then hitting again, is Dominic Reyes. Dominic Reyes is really good about bop, bop, hop, and then finding a new space. It, it sounds so basic and so obvious. You're like, why don't more guys do it? A lot of them don't have trainers who know how to do that or specialize in that or think that's the most optimum way to, 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 to be involved. Um, but angles, angles. I'm telling you guys, the more you watch boxing, the more you realize, yeah, some of that stuff just won't work in the octagon. Fair. But their details are so sharp that you're like, oh, God, the level of like specificity here is crazy. So if we can get some of that and bring it over. You're going to be doing some good things. All right. This person says, I love how people attribute Fabricio's loss to his age and time off. Are people really pretending that coming off of the trend had nothing to do with it? His opponent was exactly the same age as him. What's hilarious is that he called out Francis for his comeback fight during his suspension. First of all, what was he suspended for? I have forgotten this. Was it trend balone? Was that what it was? Um, yeah, it was. <laughs> that's interesting. Um... Yeah, that's funny. I don't know. I don't know what the story is there. Certainly, if he was, then getting off of it is going to have a performance impact, if that's a thing you want to say. Here's the one thing I would say. He wasn't looking that great before the suspension either. In the Volkov fight, I mean, not every 42 is the same. Some guys are going to be, you know, look at Couture at 42. Obviously, he's sort of the example that proves the rule. But the point being is, um, just because they're the same age by itself doesn't mean anything. But to your point, if he was, in fact, using and now he's not, you know, and that wasn't the only one. There were some other ones he got called for, apparently, as well. Um, that could obviously, I mean, clearly have an effect. And uh, I would just also add that before the layoff, he, I thought, did not look great against Volkov. And um, he had a better weight this time around. He just seemed to be in slow motion, you know. When Gaethje was asked why he made adjustments in his fighting approach, he responded. <clears throat> Excuse me. He responded by stating that he was undefeated and kept getting wins, so he felt like there was no reason to change until he lost. Tony went on a long win streak while making many technical errors in his fights. Do you think he will tidy things up in the same manner Gaethje did after his two losses? I would imagine after a loss like this, I mean, I mean, think about the way in which he lost, right? It wasn't a bad referee. Wasn't a bad judge. Bad scorecard. Now, maybe he had a bad weight cut, or at least he had the two weight cuts. Okay. Um, but, you know, it, Justin fought clean, right? You know, he didn't. He wasn't out there in a fucking eye poking him multiple times and kicking him in the balls and holding the fence, right? It was none of that, you know? Um, he just beat him. He just beat him soundly. So you would imagine after a win like that, it would force a kind of reflective moment about what went wrong. So to your point, yeah, a lot of guys, they're like, hey, listen, if I'm winning this way, I'll just keep sharpening this. Now, during that time, I think Tony also just continued to get way better. But in that video I had made earlier in the week about why he didn't wrestle, the, the, the general conclusion is Tony's reputationally got this halo around him as a wrestler, which he should because he was a two-time All-American out of Grand Valley State. 
Um, you know, USA wrestling tattoo on his leg. If you watched him wrestle in his previous fights early on in his UFC career, he, he was really good at it. He was really good at it. The only issue is that now he just he has developed a game where he has just not put a ton of emphasis on it, except on the defensive end. And I wonder if going forward, that relationship might get inverted. That relationship might change where he then begins to say, um, there are things I'm already good at. I'm not prioritizing as a way that I could. I think you could do that. The only thing that's up, he's up against is that at 37, you know, reinvention is not exactly possible here. And also, Gaethje had this ability to make a big shift because... Excuse me. In terms of the way which he was approaching a fight, there was so much wrong with it. There was wrong with it, and he was getting away with it. And so, if you take away that wrong, and you can keep the, you can distill down to its essence what's still there. He can do a lot with it. But the point being here is, Tony's doing some things wrong too. Clearly, some of his boxing and the way, at least the way which he implements it in a game, in a, in a fight, needs to be cleaned up. Um, so, so all I'm trying to say is, there are ways in which he could like get back to his wrestling clean up his fundamentals. At the same time, though, you should have probably some managed expectations because at age 36, 37, he's about to be, um, true development is usually over at that point. Adjustments, cleaning things up can happen. Some growth, it's just a little bit harder. So Gaethje had these like dramatic issues he was able to fix. Uh, Tony's got some issues, like no, no fighter is perfect, but um, and I think he will. But I don't think it could be as, let's say, reformational as uh, as what Justin did. Look, why did zero of the referees check fighters for their cups? Is that not a required piece of equipment anymore? Sounds a little odd, but when Glover was walking out, I had seen Herb doing the pre-fight checks and noticed he didn't ask for a cup knock. Again, I know this is a weird question. But why did Glover want to go out there with a flat sack? I don't know why you would want to. Although, um, they can be used against you um, for jiu-jitsu. So, if, somebody, if someone gets you in an arm bar, the cup can serve as a fulcrum. So, your elbow goes over the cup and then you drive into it. You could actually break your arm a little bit easier. Uh, you know who I thought didn't have a cup on? I didn't want to say anything because I thought I was... <laughs> People were like, why are you looking at his crotch, bro? Uh, I thought OSP didn't have a cup. Because what's-his-face came out with, like, the biggest cup ever. Here I am looking at everyone's crotch, apparently. Uh, Alexander Hernandez. And then I didn't, like, it looked like OSP was did not have one. And I was like, I noticed that too. I was like, that's a little weird. So I didn't know if that was just my imagination. Maybe there, maybe I'd have to check the rules. I would imagine Florida requires it, but Florida's not a great commission. So perhaps they don't. Um, let me look into it. I, the answer is, it's a good, it's a great question. I don't know the answer. I will look into it. That's a, that's a good one. But for sure, I was like, you know, something's a little off here. With Cejudo retiring, is now the time to dissolve the flyweight division and do a tournament at bantamweight comprised of the top 125 and 135 pound fighters. Listen, I don't have anything against flyweight. I tend to think that there are people, particularly in media, who say things like, oh, it's the best division. I love the flyweight so much. And 
the market just doesn't bear out that preference, which isn't to say there's anything wrong with the preference, but they're like, oh, it's so great, it's so great. I think you can have a perfectly fine fight palette and not like be enamored with 125. Here's my view about 125. I like it just fine. I don't adore it. I don't think it's particularly special. I mean, obviously, Demetrius Johnson was special. And it's this should also be noted, if you drain it of its very best talent, like Cejudo and Demetrius Johnson and whatever else, yeah, it's not going to be what it once was. So part of this is what is the what does the, the division naturally bear? And then also, how did the UFC cultivate that garden, so to speak? So there's a confluence of two problems there. Uh, but if you're asking me a different question, which is, what would you rather see, flyweight or 165 pounds? So then you would have in the UFC 135, 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, 205, and then 265. Yes, that would be my preference. So I don't have this like desire to get rid of 125. And if they could keep 125 and also do 165, cool. The way I've often positioned it on my radio show would, would be to ask the callers about that preference there, which is which one do you, would you rather see? Um, so do I need to see a tournament and a flyweight division and bantamweight with the very best 125ers and 135? No. I mean, I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. It, it really would depend on what you want. To me, the real thing that's missing, right? The, if I think about the thing that needs to be changed, it's 165. 165, I think, is a real missed opportunity here that we don't have. That's the one that I just keep my eye on. And I'm like, Ugh. you know, we should be doing this. Oh, God. Really, this is up here? You don't want me to get into this? I'm frankly bored with this. Uh, you have any thoughts on Obamagate? I do, but I'm not going to do it today. And his presidential run in general. I do not give him high remarks. I'll leave it at that. Um, do you have any thoughts? Oh, this is interesting. Do you have any thoughts on the takeover of Newcastle United by Saudi Arabia money? It will make them the wealthiest club in the English Premier League. Should Newcastle fans welcome owners that will spend money, considering the current owner does not, at the expense of sports washing their awful human rights reputation? Isn't MBS involved with that? Didn't I see that? Uh, the dude who killed the um, Khashoggi? Khashoggi? The journalist in the Washington Post. Hold on. I believe I saw that. I mean, it's all sort of connected in its own way. Let's see here. Uh, Roma apparently have contacted Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to discuss a possible takeover of the club despite his interest in Newcastle. Yeah, I would just say this. Again, everyone's mileage on this is going to vary and... You know, let's be clear about this. What is the major ad that's on the front of the Real Madrid jersey? It's Fly Emirates. You know, there's all kinds of just disgusting sports washing that happens, even at clubs I admire. But I got to tell you, you have that dude as your owner. You know, it's the all. Whenever you have like a Saudi, like a, this just crazy amount of money getting involved in something like this, it's the ultimate like, what is your. How much does money matter to you? Right, is really sort of, and everyone's going to have a different answer on that, you know. But um, that's an interesting one, um, because God, it's such a 
it's such you know listen they're not it's not one to one where it's like oh the most paid all always gets the most titles but the reality is in world football in general uh it is a financial arms race to see who can uh essentially you know stock the most resources and sign the biggest players and you know the team i love is guilty of that in the worst way possible so i can acknowledge that as well um Although not taking Saudi money per se, but um, the temp- they 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 know their audience because Newcastle has, from what I can tell, I'm certainly no Newcastle expert, a and all the major teams certainly from some of these like storied clubs have like an incredibly dedicated fan base, right? Super dedicated, who you know these are guys who get tattooed Newcastle stuff on their bodies for life, and they would never leave the club, and now you have a chance to like your club you always admired to be funded by unimaginable wealth. I mean, there are still rules in, in FIFA about fair play. Uh, and so there are some financial constraints that go into it. But as you can tell with teams like Barcelona and Madrid, it, you know, the level of what you're able to do as a, by virtue of wealth is extraordinary. It'd be, it'd be game-changing probably for Newcastle, right? I would imagine, at least over time. But it'd be game-changing at the expense of having, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, the worst people on earth uh, handing out their money. Uh, it's quite it's quite the dilemma. I, I'll just say this. I'm glad it's not me that has to figure that out. What do you make of Dominic Cruz's comments about the smelling of alcohol uh, and cigarettes? He has previously been a great example of how to handle a loss, most notably against Garbrandt. Could it be that he realizes that he can no longer compete with the top fight Top flight, I think you mean. Oh, excuse me. No longer compete with the top fighters in the division and has therefore resorted to uncharacteristic excuses. Yeah, that's a weird one with Dominic. Um, so I'm of two minds on that one, the more I've thought about it. On the one hand, okay, here's the first problem that I encounter. Let's say he wanted to appeal that loss. Okay, let's say he thought for sure Forget even the comments he made about Keith Peterson, just for a moment. Let's say he thought for sure he was done wrong there. Okay, and let's say for a second we all agreed. What recourse would Dominic Cruz have to fix that problem? And the answer is basically none. Zero. Because the commissions have rigged the rules in such a way as to ask essentially, you know, They have, tautological is not quite the right word, but they ask questions in such a way to get the response that goes something like this. Hey, the job that you have, referee, is to make sure that they, that you are taking care of the fighter and you make a stoppage with their health and, health and safety in mind. Um, did you do that to the best of your ability? Sure, I did. Okay, case closed. So that they never have to measure the occupational skill of any of their officiants at least not in any kind of public facing way ever and you can take them to court but who has the money and the time for that just to overturn it so they're screwed so they're screwed no matter what they do i think that is a just a profound weakness in the system i think it is deeply unfair to fighters i hate every part about it so to me 
that they lash out this way, you know, because you had Colby going after um, Mark Goddard on, on social media, is frankly kind of inevitable, to be quite honest with you. If you don't give people a mechanism to meaningfully address perceived wrongs in this world in a system that they trust, what are they going to do? <laughs> They're humans. They're going to lash out. I know everyone got on Marvin Vittori, and I know Marvin Vittori, I think, has the most backwards view of who's at fault here for the nature of the UFC's April 18th show not going forward. But remember, he had this completely bogus anti-doping charge fall on his lap, which eventually they totally rescinded, you know, and for all intents and purposes. They called it, you know, the, the, the unintentional con contamination. Uh, he's only fought and fought three times in two years. He was supposed to fight a long time ago, and it all got changed. And then at the last minute, it goes tits up, and he has no, like, the the most he'll get is what? Maybe his show money if he's lucky? Yeah, dude. If these guys are under the thumb of forces that they can't control, and they're, they run into bad luck and delay and financial constraint and, you know, whatever else... They're going to lash out. I understand that. I'm not saying he handled the hotel uh, lobby incident great because he didn't. You, it's not, you just forgive it. But the, the solution is not to be like, oh, well, he should know better. Yeah, he should. Okay. We should also not imperil the livelihood of fighters to such an extent that this kind of thing happens when an event falls through like this. If you are that tense about it it's because you've been getting run ragged by bad luck and power constraints that have absolutely crushed you i understand that i i completely understand that so all this is a roundabout way of saying if he's trying to lash out at keith peterson um and make these claims because this is his only way of you know taking back control I don't think it, it's terrible to assassinate his character. But to me, you can be mad at Dom, and I'm not here to talk you out of it. If you think, look, you can't, you can't assassinate a guy's character like that. You just can't. Uh, at the same time, that, what I, all, I'm, all I'm trying to point out is, you, if you're Dominic Cruz, you cannot assassinate someone's character like that. At the same time, that's not the only problem here. Everyone wants the fighters to do all of the work. Oh, the fighters should be better here. The fighters should act differently. The fighters should know their responsibility. How about the rest of you motherfuckers know your responsibilities and do something in a way that enables fighters to have a little bit more? Everybody wants to just shove the responsibility on them all the time. Yeah, no wonder they say fucked up and do fucked up shit. So it's not a function of, well, we just allow for bad behavior because the world is unfair. That's not what I'm telling you. Just acknowledge that for however bad that may be, you can't just simply allow people to do things that are not okay. At the same time, let me make sure something here. Yeah, at the same time, you also have to acknowledge they're not the only ones at fault. And as long as you want to maintain a system where these guys get their asses handed to them constantly, then this is what you are going to get. This is what it will be. So 
If you want to say Dominic Cruz acted inappropriately, sure. Of course he did. You know, you can't say things like that. Assassinating a guy's character like that. And by the way, I, I didn't think the stoppage was perfect. I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay. But, you know, <laughs> you systemically deny them any opportunity to have the people who control their lives have their own occupational... Um, you know, viability ever examined. You don't give them any opportunity to bargain for uh, greater financial resources. You don't give them any opportunity to bargain for greater protections for their name and career. And then you wonder why they lash out in hotel lobbies. Gee, I can't imagine why. Thoughts on the U.S. women's national team failed attempt to get equal pay. Don't you think it's unrealistic as there is a clear difference between playing against Ronaldo and Messi as the men, American men, will be competing against compared to the American women team playing against soccer moms? So if you guys didn't see this, a judge had ruled against the uh, women's soccer team. They had put together a complaint and a lawsuit alleging that they had been uh, systemically underpaid, not merely in aggregate, but by virtue of their um, success and, and, um, and, 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 and even what they had drawn in terms of revenue. And a judge essentially looked at the math and said that that's not really true. Now, I've not gone into this situation in grand detail. All I'll say is it looks like what might happen is that they'll, as a consequence of this, they'll be forced to settle. And whatever the terms are you want to make of um, the women's argument, excuse me, the women's argument, it's just not a great look for U.S. soccer to have the kind of, first of all, leadership turmoil that they have. It's not a good look that the men can't even make the fucking World Cup and the women are winning it, uh, however the differences might be in your imagination um, or even in reality. And it's just not a good look that you know, there, you, you would rather have harmony organizationally than to see this kind of disruption. So what I think will happen is it will force both parties to the negotiating table to ultimately get a better settlement uh, and, a better, and a better situation. Uh, and if that's the case and everyone mutually benefits, um, then to me, it's a fine solution. Um, why did fighters from the Japanese organizations like Pride, Dream, and Sengoku struggle or not succeed in the UFC? Examples that come to mind are Krokop. I don't know. Krokop had some pretty good success. Uh, Takanori Gomi, Dennis Kang, Kid Yamamoto, and Hatsuhiyoki. In the past, I heard that jet lag from Japan to the U.S. is much worse than vice versa, although I'm skeptical of it. UFC 144 and Silva versus Stan being examples. Although Silva versus Stan was in Japan, um, and neither guy was Japanese. Is that what you mean? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, is that the Japanese? Oh, actually, let me see who was on the car. Just to let's see. First of all, Gomi won on that card. So did Ricky Fukuda. Who was out of um, Crazy B? So did Hioki. Akiyama lost, but he lost to Jake Shields, so no harm there. Um, Yamamoto lost. Rest in peace. God, Steve Cantwell, the robot. I remember him. Um, most of the Japanese donks won. Uh, Takeya Mizugaki didn't, but okay. You're asking a question. So one, the idea is that you're right. Um, anyway. Is it Japanese MMA was more spectacle than sport with some parts of it favoring the stars they wanted? What are your theories? Yeah, so one is that what you heard. It's easier to go from 
the United States to Japan versus from Japan to the United States. And it has to do with something about circadian rhythms. I don't know that there's any real research to prove that, but some of these guys really believe it. So perhaps that is a reason. One of the other reasons that people bring up is, um, you know, oh, the organizations over there just weren't as good as a lot of spectacle. Well, I mean, part, there's always an element of truth to it, but it's not, you have to like understand how explanatory it is. So the people are like, oh, Fedor fought a bunch of cans. Well, right, he did. He fought a bunch of people who were not necessarily all that good. But that was one of the reasons why he was as big of a star as he was. He would beat the guys that were legit, at least in his heyday. And then he would fill it with a bunch of other matches where he would just fuck these dudes up who had no business being in there with him. And it created this larger-than-life prestige. That's the boxing model. Right? I mean, that's really what that is to a pretty strong degree. Not not exactly the same, but heavy, heavy overlap there. Okay? So that's the first part of it. There's something wrong with that, you know. The second part is, a lot of those guys, um, there were bigger changes than I think they had anticipated. One of those being, for example, I think Crow Cop really struggled in the cage due to its angular nature open angular nature if you go back and look at his fight with eddie sanchez which was his ufc debut if, if i recall correctly dude eddie sanchez was not on the level of a crow cop not even close but crow cop had real difficulty cornering him this is why boxing is so interesting to me in, in many ways you're, you're fighting in a confined space with four 90 degree angles dude there's nowhere to hide in there your footwork has to be impeccable uh, and if it's not, you're just going to get crowded. And if you're not used to cornering guys in the way in which you need to for cage cutting practices as it relates to MMA, it's a big adjustment, especially if you're already in the middle or even post-prime, which some of those guys who came over were a little bit post-prime by the time that they did. Um, so so that's another big reason. It was like the structural differences. Some of them were post-prime. Um you know, is a variety. Could the travel have been a reason? But you're conflating sort of two different things here. One is people who fought in Japan, and then also Japanese fighters. Um, you know, those might those are those are sort of two. I mean, not sort of. Those are very much two different uh, ways of evaluating it. Like when when Silva came over, he was. I mean, you missed his heyday. You know, um, and some guys came over and struggled like Shogun, and then rebounded and did quite well. Right, became a UFC champion. But again, a lot of these guys had like these incredible amounts of wars, and by the time they came over, it was just not the same. Noguera came over and and you know had won a belt. Uh, also, the other part about it is they came over and then as they had, there was this new generation of talent developing with a different set of best practices. So like Noguera comes over and you know has some losses, has some wins, and then fights Cain Velasquez, who's like this at the time was far beyond what any other heavyweight was in terms of like a guy with that few of no, I think he had a handful of fights at that point and he just blew the fucking doors off Noguera I mean it was you know so there's always this confluence of factors but is there a part of it to say that a lot of the size and spectacle of the pride shows affected people's sense about how good they were sure that could play a role did Fedor for example taking a good fight here and then fighting like Naoya Ogawa another time did that affect his Ranking, perhaps in a way of getting some kind of an artificial bump, probably. Um, yeah, those all play a role. But it, like anything, it's just going to be a little bit more complicated than you might imagine. Have you ever had an absolutely soulless job? Oh, fuck yeah. 
And do you think that the American dream is becoming harder to achieve? Have I ever had a truly soulless job? Oof. Yeah, I've had a couple of them. Uh, I've had jobs inside MMA, or at least interviews for jobs, certainly, where um, <laughs> the guy, there's several cases where I either did not get the job or they offered me like a lesser version of even what I was applying for. And then now those people have all been bounced out of the industry. That's been an interesting thing to watch. Um, but sure, dude, I've had every kind of, you know, I've, I've had a lot of different jobs. I've worked even in, uh, as a teenager, I worked in fast food. Um, I've worked in bars. I've worked and I was a waiter in restaurants. Um, you know, I've had to take jobs, you know, uh, as a copy editor, um, you know, just sort of reading and proofreading, writing up um, technical manuals. I, I did that for a time when I was in my early 20s, just sort of writing up technical instruction. Jesus Christ, you know, you're, you're, it was in a room full of like 30 other people doing the exact same thing. People barely talked. There was no camaraderie. Um, you know, and then the, jo the jobs got better. But, you know, I had a job years ago working in politics. And uh, fuck, man. That was the one that got me out of it. That was the one where I was like, I'm done. Because, you know, you peel back the curtain a little bit and it's like, you just, it's hard to explain. The only people that need, it's not truly the only people. Everybody needs effective messaging, but the people who really need it are just the most awful human beings alive. <laughs> and the worst organizations. And I somehow found a way where I didn't think I was gonna do that when I took a job speech writing. I was a speech writer for a time. And then I ended up, you know, having to defend just these unspeakably repulsive characters to the point where the job stressed me out so much, my fingernails fell out from stress. I went to the doctor and I was missing like four or five fingernails. And um, that wasn't even why I went to the doctor. I went to a doctor for a different reason. He was like, why are your fingernails missing? And I was like, I don't know. They just fall out. He's like, you know, that's not normal. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And I eventually, I did that job for about two years. And uh, that's not soulless in the sense of like work that you don't take dignity in or something. But it was soulless and like in the, it was just, it was just, and it wasn't depraved in the sense of, you know, um, How do I explain this? It wasn't, it, what it lacked was any, any, any real notion of humanity. And it was just such a total burden on my life. So I did it for about two years and then I quit. And uh, like I, I would go to this job and break out in hives. I mean, it was that bad. And then when I quit, like my health just like, like within three months, all my health problems went away. It was the craziest shit. When people talk about like what stress does to a person, before that, because dude, I've been in the military. I was, I was how old was I when I took that job? I had just gotten out of the military. I had just gotten out, and I remember um, I used to be like, what, like, like people talk about stress as a thing, but the truth is, like, the kind of stress I encountered in the military, I was built for, but on some level, you know, I was built for. But then I got to this where it weighed upon my moral conscience. And, uh, and I, and I hated what it did to me. And then that 
that was a very eye-opening experience and I could never, I don't think I could ever go, I mean, I literally couldn't go back to it. Like in terms of just its health implications, I could not go back to it. Um, even if I was able to make significantly more money doing it or something. Um, so yeah, I have. Now your different question about the American dream is, 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 your question about the American dream is slightly different, which is to say, is it becoming harder to achieve? Again, I would always caution everyone to go and read relevant experts in the field who probably have a greater degree of uh, insight and value to add to this conversation. But the answer to that is, is quite matter-of-factly yes, right? We're, there's, there's a major problem of inequality. One of the things that has defined the uh, American middle class was not merely its size and its robustness, uh, but rather um, the ability for one to enter it, that there was a degree of social mobility um, that, I mean, we're not Latin America yet where, you know, if you are born poor, it's a virtual guarantee you're going to die poor, but certainly that social mobility has been significantly reduced. And so there's probably a confluence of, of problems where jobs don't seem to have the same degree of dignity that they once did, especially with the growing gig economy. And then that mobility into a degree of safety where, you know, was it the average American family would not be able to pay a, a, a $400 bill if it happened like all of a sudden? Yeah, there's a lot going on. All right, all politics aside, who in your opinion deserves a heavyweight title shot, Francis or DC? Francis, right? I mean, I'm not opposed to DC getting the next one for all the reasons that would be obvious. Like, hey, hey, maybe we should settle this trilogy to see who's the best heavyweight in the UFC ever. I'm not opposed to that. I think that's a perfectly fine reason to make the fight. But if you're asking like who has worked himself into a position by a series of like impressive wins to merit a title shot, it's Big Francis, right? I mean, what is, the, what is the total time in his last four fights? Something like two minutes and 40-something seconds? It's ridiculous, dude. And it's not against chumps. It's against good fighters. And for all his flaws and his technical development, they if they can't make him pay for it, who can? I mean, he's not fighting Shamil Abdurakimov. He's fighting, you know, Junior Dos Santos. And he's fighting Jair Zinho. And he's fighting, you know, Curtis Blades. Like, he's fighting the top guys. After 249, a buddy of mine told me that he thinks Tony got exposed. I argued that he didn't based on Justin Gaethje being as a uh, high-level fighter as, as Tony. Being just as high, excuse me, a high-level fighter as Tony. To you, what does it mean when a fighter becomes exposed, and would you apply that to Ferguson after losing to Gaethje? Well, I mean, here's the thing. People overuse it so much that at this point, you can apply it to so many situations that it's, it's sort of lost its meaning. What it's, I think what it's supposed to mean is that somebody goes along their career and they're actually not that good and they are purposely taking fights that in a way don't ever challenge that so as to maintain this. And then when they can no longer avoid that and they have to take on a real contender, it gets blown up. The problem with that argument with Tony is that he was fighting nothing but the top guys. Now... Eventually, if you fight enough of the top guys, whatever weakness you have will be exposed. But if the idea is that you have this real credibility uh, flaw, that yes, you have wins, but you did it by meandering around challenges, how could you make that argument about Tony Ferguson? Did he face 
all of the toughest challenges? Well, no. I mean, you know, the fight with Nurmagomedov fell through five times, and he hasn't fought Poirier yet or something. Or, you know, you could make a case he didn't fight literally everybody. But, dude, he fought former champions. He fought number one contenders. He fought very, very good talents. He fought submission guys. He fought strikers. He fought wrestlers. He fought everyone in between. He fought guys bigger than him. He fought guys smaller than him, faster, whatever. Um, he got rocked and came back. You know, he got cut and dealt with it. You know, his re his resume before this fight was fantastic. So in the way in which your friend is using it makes no sense. If you would want to argue that there have long been deficiencies in his boxing that another fighter who is a better boxer in MMA was able to take advantage of, yes, that is true. Someone finally made him pay for his boxing. The other part about it is like you go back and, and this was a while ago, you watch the T-Bow fight. You know, and there's moments in there where Ferguson's getting his head popped, but then he lands and he's, you know, we were talking about the pacing earlier. There are moments there where he's like marching down on these guys and they'll pop his head back, but he just kind of keeps going into them. The power wasn't a deterrent. They didn't move well. They didn't force him to reset as much, right? All the things we went over with with Gaethje. And the other part is, he would crack him and hurt him, and then the whole shit would be over. He just he wasn't able to do that with Justin, because Justin was out of the way, you know, for the most part. That one uppercut, notwithstanding. Um, and so, in that sense, it kind of papered over some of the flaws that he had in his game. But to be clear about this, Tony has <laughs> very much beaten big large swaths of the best of his generation in the toughest weight class. The idea that this guy has been taking just the right kind of challenge so as not to have his obvious flaws uh, derail a winning, a winning record is ridiculous and should be ignored by everyone. Thoughts on the news of Showtime and Bellator collaborating for shows? And crossover fights. Interested to hear your take as a Showtime employee. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, I this is, on my mother, this is true. I had no idea they were even contemplating doing, like, on the same day, like, boxing and MMA or have boxers. Well, no, Coker had talked about it before, having um, some of his fighters cross over and fight boxers. Like, that happened when the news first was reported about... Um, him having to report to Steven Espinosa. So that part, I, I guess I knew. But the part about them doing it on like the same day in the same event on the same night, same broadcast, news to me. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's not much I can say uh, other than it makes sense, right? I mean, you know, I don't, this is just my opinion. I don't speak for anyone at Showtime. This is not Showtime's opinion. This is just Luke Thomas's opinion. I don't think Bellator at Paramount is necessarily a great marriage. I think that, dude, like, well, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you logged into your DAZN account? And I say this as a paying DAZN subscriber. I can't remember the last time I logged into my DAZN account. And I get it, there's no sports, but dude, here's the problem with a DAZN deal. Uh, and I'm not sure if this is exactly the same problem that everybody faces. I don't know that this is the same problem that Canelo faces. I don't know that this is the same problem that Anthony Joshua faces. But here's just my opinion. And you're going to say, oh, Luke, you're biased as a Showtime employee. Uh, okay, well, take this with a grain of salt then. 
my belief, and if you're wrong, I'd love to hear what you've seen to counteract this, is that DAZN has something really going for it as this sort of um, first-to-market or sports-only technology-driven company. And I think there's something to be said for that. They are run by a guy who is eminently talented in, the, in terms of John Skipper, who previously ran ESPN. I respect that very much. Um, but they've said two things, or they've done two things. One, they've said, we can't really succeed in any market unless we get the access to the premier rights. So that's NBA, NFL, MLB in this country, and, 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 on, and so on. And we'll see if that happens. But the other part is, with Bellator, listen, I love being able to go into my Bellator app if I need to see an old fight, and it's right there. That's great. But, dude, no one tells their stories. Bellator events happen, and it, they just, like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's Friday, there's a Bellator event. No one is building up any of their fighters. No one is telling their... I mean, the media does on occasion, of course, right? But, I mean, in terms of, like, a real PR component... The only thing that DAZN seems to be doing for them is not that, but rather just being this like warehouse for their live streaming and then paying them a bunch of money, which I'm sure is nice, but it, it, wherever they end up, back on Paramount, you know, if they go uh, and, and, and this relationship with Showtime blossoms and who knows what happens, it's pretty clear what Bellator is missing. Listen, they cannot compete with UFC. They're not the UFC. That's not the issue. The issue is, if you're going to have a partner, look at what ESPN has done for UFC, right? It's not, I mean, you were on national TV when you were on Fox. You had Fox Sports 1, blah, blah, blah. Dude, the storytelling on ESPN and then their coverage on their other ancillary shows, ancillary program, has been unbelievable. It's been such a boon for them, and not merely in terms of how it makes them look in their position in the mainstream, but then on top of it, like the, the way in which they're able to get you invested in the product, because I'll give them credit, dude, ESPN, they're very good storytellers. You know, I would humbly submit to you on the boxing side, Showtime, pretty goddamn good storytellers. So that's a pretty clear component to me that's missing. DAZN doesn't do it. Again, less so for the Canelo side and, 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 and Anthony Joshua, and then you could make some claims about why. But to me, it's like, you know, Coker and um, Espinosa used to work together, so there's a relationship there. Um, DAZN, to me, you could pay all the money in the world for your streaming rights, but if you're not building this product and creating pe characters people invest in and showing not really dynamic fights, but making people care about dynamic fights, there's a big opportunity. And there's a lot you're leaving on the on the table there. Um, I have to get going a little bit early. Let me see if there's a good one here I can answer. I'm not going to get going right now. I'm going to keep. I'm going to answer your questions. Hang on just a second. Oh, let me get to this one. When it comes to stopping a fight, a great deal of people cite reasons such as unanswered strikes or time elapsed without a fighter attempting offense. Are these truly the proper indicators of stopping a fight, or is there more of a straw man fallacy used to justify questionable stoppages? The cruise stoppage was justified with the logic of unanswered strikes, but there are many instances where there are unanswered strikes in a fight, so why is it only relevant in the finish when a fighter is trying to defend himself rather than generate offense? Okay, let's start there. The cruise stoppage was justified in the logic of unanswered strikes, right? But there are many instances where people take those, why is it only relevant in the finish when a fighter is trying to defend himself rather than generate offense? 
Um, well, because you're talking about the end of a fight where one person is pouring it on the other. The generational offense, to me, would not be the defining characteristic there. Here is where the Cruz problem is interesting. There's still work to be done on the intelligent defense standard. In Smith versus Teixeira, what you saw was this confluence of events where a guy in Teixeira is beating the bejesus of another guy, but not overly committing such that he can usher the end along in an expeditious way, which gives openings for a guy who's tough and defensively sound in the way that Smith is to hang on. And what the referee is looking for is decision-making. Are you moving? Are you responding to instructions? Are you meaningfully trying to both cover up and then advance some kind of goal? And I would have stopped it sooner, but um, I can understand. To me, Herzog could have stopped it earlier and then been clear about instructions between rounds and should not have let it gone out for the fifth. But in any event, to me, he's less of the issue because intelligent defense will allow someone in a, in not in many circumstances, but in certain circumstances, to take a tremendous beating while still complying with these notions of accepting instructions, moving, trying to, you know, clearly showing decision-making. The two are not mutually exclusive. And at some point, if you've taken enough abuse, that's when it should be called. Harder to define as a standard, but it clearly is a deficiency. The other part here is, here's the problem with what happened with Cruz. If you crack someone and they drop, and now you put an arm around their waist, they're face first into the canvas, and you're unloading. What we want in an ideal scenario is that when the referee goes to intervene and waves it, and the person doing the offense gets up, we don't want any body language from the person underneath to indicate that there was anything premature about the stoppage. So think about a really good stoppage. A guy gets hit, drops, someone comes on, and they're pounding, referee intervenes, winner gets pushed off, and then the guy who was losing just kind of almost just stays in position as he begins to recover. When they, when they move the instant, either during the intervention or just after it, and they move in a way that's, like, let's say, non-wobbly. I'm not talking about, like, you know, your body on autopilot. I'm talking, like, a conscious, clear decision. Um, it still is a good stoppage because the referee, assuming they waited long enough to intervene, can't predict when exactly they're going to move. And if they give you a chance to move, you should. But it creates a conflict, I think, in the minds of fans and media observers alike that, oh, well, if this person was still capable of making decisions then there should have been a greater degree of patience exercised. What you also have to remember here is that, listen, you could be a referee, I could be a referee. We could both be able to state the rules to the letter in the state in which we are operating. We both could have extraordinary experience. It's like two judges, you know, if you've ever been, uh, you know, sat in a jury or just watched TV or anything, your chances with one judge who might be just as experienced as another could be different on a whole set of factors. What is the gender of the judge? Are they hard on people who are drunk drivers? Are they not? Um, they both know the law. They both understand what the sentencing guidelines are. But at the same time, they're going to interpret things a little bit differently. So that's a key portion here as well. The McGregor-Mayweather fight was stopped and justified because Connor hadn't thrown a punch in a minute. But Floyd had hardly thrown a punch in the first round of the fight. So why is this a relevant stat? So in that particular case, the reason why is not merely that Connor is getting tagged. The body language that he is showing getting tagged where he's loose and flopping and the head is going back and he's sort of on autopilot retreating, that's not the same as Floyd early sort of rolling with punches, covering up or blocking.
Not saying I disagree with either stoppage, but I'm confused about the logic being applied. Any insight you could provide? Yeah, I think that's the one that makes sense. Okay, with the time we have remaining, let me get to your questions. As you guys know, you're always able to, you never honor any obligation to, but you're always able to donate. And if you do, I get to your questions therein. Okay, so let us get to it now, right here. If given the chance to fight one time in the UFC, what song would you have chosen? Again, I've been over this a few times. Uh, it would be uh, Big Mouth Strikes Again by the Smiths. Question. Um, best donkified title from your donk audience? A few good donks. Donkinator 2, Judgment Donk. Lock Donk and Two Smoking Barrels. And please add one. Um, donk 2, Electric Boogaloo. I don't know. Can you explain how to check a leg kick? Well, there's plenty of tutorials on YouTube that you could um, look at, um, but the most common way, uh, you can do it with your foot planted, you can do it with your foot raised. It is If your knee comes up straight, it's to then face it out at a 45 degree angle, and then uh, the foot comes up raised so that the muscle is tighter around the shin, and that you have uh, direct contact with your opponent's shin. And this takes time to get used to, and is incredibly painful, but with some conditioning, uh, is certainly doable. So I live in Lake County, Florida, and Governor DeSantis just announced that gyms will open on Monday. Did he really? Holy shit. I'm itching to get back in there, but it is too early. I'm married with a two-year-old, so I'm very hesitant. Well, that's a really interesting one. So two things I would say about this. One, um, I had made a previous video on this channel, I think discussing the UFC's options, and I had thought that things were going to get really bad in Florida. I need to be honest with you, those projections have not come true. Florida is doing significantly better as a place in terms of its COVID-19 outbreak than many had estimated. Now, the question is why, and no one really knows. Could be that the heat down there is playing a dramatic role in tamping down its, uh, uh, its, how easily it's transmitted. That could be one. Uh, another one could be, and there's actually plenty of evidence to conclude, that even though there weren't as many on the books laws about staying at home people kind of took it upon themselves to do it anyway and there's sort of ways they measure that um so that could be an explanation for it that these dire predictions came wrong came not true um first of all i would say number one florida and here's the other part about it they've on the other side they're changing their death data um and the coroner's office has been uh, irate about it so the other part is, while the projections about how bad it was going to come true never did, certainly not at this point. I mean, we'll see what happens when the weather gets cold again, right? Who knows? But um, it is also true that they have manipulated politically some of the data that comes out. So it's, it's a bit of a two-way street. But to be clear, the dire predictions, and certainly I was believing some of them, not true. And I can acknowledge it up front. I think we have to, right? We have to be pretty clear about that. Again, that, that will vary county to county, but in general, Florida has done significantly better. So I would go on, um, if you go to, I think it's called, it's the, it's, the, it's the only system I use. Go to covidtracking.com and then go and click on state-by-state -state data, go to Florida's data, and then Florida in there has a way to look at the outbreak in your particular county. Take a look at it, and they rank the counties in terms of outbreak by color coding and by number, so you can sort of take a look if you're at the lower end of it, you know, maybe go off hours, maybe work out in a mask, maybe don't take the risk at all. I mean, if you have married with a two-year-old, I mean, I don't know what your age and your health range is or your or your or your um your spouse or your kid. I mean, these are difficult decisions for everyone to make at this point. Um, we're clearly entering, I think, a phase of people have COVID and quarantine fatigue. 
I think social distancing is fraying. And so I'm kind of laying back now because we're entering this new phase of who the fuck knows what's about to happen next, especially with the weather heats up, could get like dramatically better. So who the hell knows? But the point being is, would I go to the gym in your circumstance? I'd probably wait it out a little bit, to be honest with you. And if I did, I would go at off hours and I would probably work out in a mask and I would not touch my face or my phone. You know, I would just, I'd have to make some adjustments. But I wouldn't rule it out. I would just see how things go with that because, you know, if you're just, if you go back right away and they're not doing a really good job with, um, you know, uh, cleaning the place or monitoring who's really coming in with any kind of issue, you know, it, the whole system could just, your whole shit could get fucked up again. So, I would exercise some patience and some caution, but I, I don't know that I would effectively 100% in all cases rule it out if you're really, really, really committed to it. But again, you're running the risk of if you get it and you give it to your wife and you give it to your kid, what, who are they in contact with and what could their health outcomes be? It's, it's a lot to weigh. Um, but to be clear, Florida is not doing nearly as bad as people said, including me. Rank the officiating in the thir three five-round fights this week. I think Peterson did a better job than Dean or Herzog get Peterson got buried. Uh, he also did a great job in the Michael Johnson and Tiago Moises fight, Peterson did. Um, Dean, wait, a lot of them waited a little too long. Who was the referee, Herzog? Yeah, Herzog to me did, the, again, I don't think he's as responsible as the corner, to be honest with you. Dean did f okay, Herzog was late, and Peterson was a little bit early. Could Francis be a tougher fight than for John than Stipe? Hard to know because there's so many unknowns with him, man. Like, is he as, his coaches tell me he's like way, way better. You know, that power is such a game changer. I would still say Stipe, given how well-rounded he is, is probably a tougher fight, but I, I'm still going to say Stipe. But the Francis one... Stipe is just more of a known commodity, so I'm 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 saying Stipe because I just know more about it. That doesn't actually make it the better choice. Who is more responsible to what happened to Anthony Smith, the ref or his corner? You know, the legal answer there is his is the referee, right? I've had uh, Nick Lemba, who's the executive director of the New Jersey State, New Jersey State Athletic Control Board, sort of go back and forth with me on social media about this. I like Nick very much, and he said, look. Corner doesn't have any actual obligation to do that. The referee does. Okay, fine. But let's talk about how the system works when it fails. Um, there are multiple levers that can get pulled here. The, ref the fighter could quit, which seems unlikely. The referee is supposed to intervene in, in the way that, that they need to. Uh, and then the, the, the corner can do it. To me, here's the problem. The corner doesn't hear, of course, he has the teeth he picks up, but the corner doesn't hear some of the things that well, you know what? I guess in that sense, it's a wash. Here's why it's different for me. I can understand Jason Herzog adhering to the intelligent defense standard. To me, what happened in this fight is not common. I think the way in which the intelligent defense standard is upheld is generally very good. But here is a case where another counter, uh, another factor should have been weighed, which was just accumulative damage with, you know, not really low probability of a turnaround, but the only reason the fight was going on was because of the nature of the approach of um, 
Teixeira, at some point, if you cross that line where that we're just watching a guy take abuse from dominant positions ad nauseum, quite literally ad nauseum, um, it's time to intervene. Uh, in the case of the corner, to me, and I've said this on the video, like you guys don't know Mark Montoya. I've interacted with him many times. He is a... Sh you would talk to him and that you would not come away with the impression that this is somebody who doesn't know what he's doing, who is some kind of evil person, who doesn't care. It's, it's, it's got nothing to do with that. The problem is they have, in MMA, high-level corners. And it's not just Mark Montoya, although he's been involved in some noteworthy ones. But high-level corners prioritize um, extending all possible... Um, opportunities to a fighter over their health and so how do you convince them to dial that back where you give a little bit more weight to health and a little bit less credence to possibility and that's really the issue because the ideology that is adopted by them and it's not just them you know brandon gibson has told me he wants that stoppage they didn't get back uh the the, the one between the cerrone and masvidal he said if he could do that again they wouldn't have sent him out for the next round they could they would take it they would they would have stopped it you know, he, he's not the only one that, that has um, struggled with this. But if your guy is, you know, in the, in the state he's in and you're sending him back out there, you are banking on the most improbable of comebacks with the most probable result that they're going to get absolutely butchered along the way. Um, and I just don't think that's a, I think that's the, how do you convince them to not do that? And short of a fighter suffering catastrophic failure i don't know the answer to that i just don't know the i don't know how, i don't know how you do that because arguing that they really don't have a, cho a choice they will say that's the mindset of someone who's never pushed themselves to the absolute limit that's the mindset of someone who just doesn't understand meanwhile it's also in their sense that's the mindset of somebody that's going to get somebody killed i mean dude I, I said it before go watch that maxim datashev fight He's way more composed and way more competitive than Smith was at the end in this one, and he still died. You know, uh, I, I, I don't know how you make an argument to those folks about weighing the risk versus reward and, the, and what the actual probability is of victory at that point. Where does Tony go from here when his own management is calling for his retirement? Did they really? I didn't see that. Um, well, certainly he needs to heal. I would like to see him get a few more in. I, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, that's the first real bad beating he's ever taken. It was a bad one, but... Someone says, I work at a university and have access to a database. What are some reading recommendations you have on anti-doping policies and uh, they work or not? Yep, let me pull up my Kindle reading list. And I will let you know. So here is your answer. Uh, let's see. Let me read all these to you. Ah, hold on. Can't log in. All right. Um, so here is what you need. Um, let's see. I just bought, but I've not read. 
let's see the, the library. Here we go. Uh, okay. A global history of doping and sport um, is the first one. This is by uh, John Gleaves and Thomas Hunt. All right. So then we go to pull up the library. Uh, history and philosophy of sport and physical activity. Um, let's see what else we have here. We have the ethics of anti-doping. That's by Paul DeMio. We have, uh, let's see, scientific, scientific integrity and anti-doping regulation. These are very scintillating reads, I can assure you. Uh, the War on Drugs in Sport. Uh, this is by, uh, let's see. God damn it. It's a woman. What's her name? This is by uh, Vanessa McDermott. The Anti-Doping Crisis in Sport by Werner Muller and Paul DeMio. And um, the History of Drug Use in Sports, 1876 to 1976, Paul DeMio. Get started. This is what I mean when people are like, oh... You know, your views are crazy. Word. Is that what they are? Or have you just not familiarized yourself with the literature that says otherwise? I bet it's the latter. Uh, which fighter on the UFC roster would you say is both very overrated and underrated? <laughs> God. I don't know. I pass. I don't know. Do you think that Oliveira is championship caliber? Um... I think he's knocking on the door of it. I don't know that I've seen that from him yet, but he's not far. Should we have seen this coming considering his last three opponents in age? They're not the caliber of a Poirier or an Alvarez. Tony's most credentialed win was RDA, and that was a while ago. Yeah, I think the age was something we should have seen, but again, he lost to Justin Gaethje. He didn't lose to some scrub-ass dude. So the question is, what does he look like next? And then, but yes, I mean, dude, 36-37 is lightweight. It's not young. It's not young. Next opponent for Drew Dober. Anyone in that top 15-ish? So I would say for Dober, somewhere around the Makachev, Gillespie kind of space. You know, Carlos Diego Fajera, Kevin Lee kind of space maybe for feeling generous. Cowboy, I don't know. And then Pettis. Um, if he's gonna, Well, for Pettis, I would say Hooker. Something like that. That'd be kind of cool, right? Or maybe they'll do the Dan Hardy fight. I don't know. Do you think there's any validity to the comments DC made about Smith during the corner Wednesday regarding the constant shouting of orders causing gassing? To me, um, I'd love to talk to him about that, if they'll even talk to me at this point. Um, but I would suspect that every corner is going to be different. But So let's see what they say. They may, like Anthony may like that chaos. On the other hand, he might be right, which is that you know you need clear instruction, but not frantic instruction. But I would need to hear from uh, Anthony before that's before I can say for sure. Uh, someone says, "Can't wait for you to be in the JRE." Yeah, me too. Can you tell us one thing you dislike about? Oh Jesus Christ! I mean, what are we doing here, folks? All right. Uh, okay. Someone says, a uh, late question I know, um, talking about half Thor Bjornsson rolling the bar for the deadlift. Isn't that a momentum technique similar to bouncing? So the bouncing you're talking about, there's two kinds of deadlift. There's dead stop where you lift the weight up and then you come back down and then the, the weight comes to a dead stop, hence the deadlift. 
and the, the other one is called touch and go where you just kind of the, the the barbell kind of touches the ground and you keep kind of going. they both have a, a a value for different training modalities i only i i don't have a need to do touch and go i only ever do dead stop i did by the way i did some deadlifting in my front yard uh with my new trap bar boy that gets the neighbors to stop and watch huh um, but no, I thought so too. I thought if you're if the bar is in motion, it's going to make it easier to lift, but it, it doesn't actually. There's no physics behind that. The only thing it allows him to do is if you roll the bar out, and he's not rolling it at a far distance, as it comes in, it, it enables him to keep a tight core, anchor underneath, and then have his hips at the right place so when the bar's at his shins, he can rise. Because he can't get that tightness and then just do it bending over. He has to sit almost and then come up. Uh, Jones versus Nganu, who wins? I still say Jones, I think, but it's profoundly intriguing. Profoundly. Look, I've been stuttering my whole life. I'm 30 now, and it's still hard to talk to people. I'm afraid to order food or even apply for certain professions where, uh, where, where you have to communicate. Any tips? Again, if, there's, if it's possible, speak to a speech pathologist. They're going to know how to do this better than anybody else, but I stuttered as a kid as well. I still have a couple of places where the articulation of certain words or combinations of sounds can be difficult. But for me, I found that the practicing of, like anything else, again, a speech pathologist is really the way to go here because they can give you a program by which to um, you know, directly and systemically address the issues. But for me, I found all the ways in which I was not being clear I would talk to people like, what are the words that you just can't understand? And they would sort of tell me, and then I would put it all together, and I just went over them and over them and over them and over them. And I made sure to talk to people. Uh, we've praised Tony for his wrestling ground upon his entire career. All attempts on Gaethje were hopeless. Does Gaethje give you hope in this Khabib fight? Yes. I mean, I still think he is very, very capable of giving Khabib a hard time. At the same time, he's not exactly, Tony is the same kind of sort of dedicated wrestling threat that Khabib is. So it's still very much an un, uh, unknown in that regard. Do you see these fights being, uh, fighters being championship at some point? Bryce Mitchell, maybe. Drew Dober, still kind of early. Gillespie, probably not. Walker, no. Jeff Neal, I'll say maybe. Rosenstruck, no. How do you maintain a friendship with a person who has a moral fabric that conflicts with you? I Let's see. Shab has minimized the deaths of 87,000 Americans, labels those who wear masks as sheep, and starts a biz selling overpriced merch in this enviro. Well, you're under no obligation to buy the merch. And certainly I do not care for his views on this kind of a thing. Um, also, I saw he had David Rubin on his podcast. I was like, Brendan, we should have a talk. But uh, I don't find him to be a morally damaged person. I find him to be, um, I just think, and he thinks I'm wrong. I find him to be very wrong about this, but I have found that Shab is a very caring person, is a thoughtful person. Uh, I know you're going to say, oh, it's not true, uh, but it is true. And I have found him to be amenable to evidence when it's presented to him in a, in a way. I just don't live in California. I can't have these conversations with him. And I think he's around a lot of, a lot of other people that are probably quarantine fed up and giving him you know bad information. I would consider it to be bad information. The other part about it is, I think there's also a time to rethink. If, if social distancing is going to fray a little bit, then it should fray in something of a targeted way where like, I still see lockdowns about use in public spaces and parks and beaches and whatnot. And that to me 
seems like a really bad idea, right? So part of it is the pushback is somewhat understandable. The other one is that if you have a friend that has bad ideas about the world, you have to ask yourself, are they worth just throwing away by virtue of a disagreement or do you find them to be truly corrupt? And I would say that the most, most of the time, the answer is that they're not corrupt. It's just a function of working it out. All right, I need to fire through these because I have to get going. Bare Knuckle Boxing, Tyson versus Liddell. Tyson, how is it not a conflict of interest that Ali has leveraged all of his clients in a way to secure them opportunities otherwise unwarranted? Conflict of interest in what way? In what particular way you're talking about? I mean, I've had this conversation with him before about like, is buddying up to the UFC the best way to get things for your clients if it means on some level they get better benefits and in other ways it could produce... Uh, you know, there's a question about like where the fiduciary responsibility comes in. Is that what you mean? Uh, you, have, you have to ask it in a bit of a different way. Is James Vick still in the UFC? I don't know. If Stipe and Cormier don't compete for another heavyweight championship, should Jones and Ngannou fight for the title? Sure. Don't mind that at all. Do you think coaches will purposely yell out wrong information since these areas are going to be empty for a while? I do think adjustments are going to be made, to be clear. Ever mess with someone's food as a waiter? Tempted like a motherfucker, but no, never done it. Uh, someone says, uh, 0311, oh, infantry, Semper Fi, Semper Fi, sir. And is the last dance nostalgia porn for middle-aged white dudes? 1,000% guilty as charged, bitches. 100% guilty. Okay, I have to get going. I'm sorry, guys, I got to do another shoot, so I have to keep it moving. Oh, here's one more. Should Khabib be the pound-for-pound king right now? Him or John Jones? Probably. Uh, okay, thank you guys so much for watching. I always really appreciate it. Subscribe to the video. Uh, thumbs up the whole nine yards tonight me and Brian Campbell 945 we're going to be boozing and watching Mayweather McGregor come join us for free and then tomorrow I'll either do a post fight show tomorrow I'll have a bunch of videos out on Sunday we'll figure that out okay thank you guys so much for watching I really appreciate it until next time stay frosty <laughs>